Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is award-winning film director Grant McPhee. Grant's first feature was 2015's Big Gold Dream, which tells the story of Fast Product and Postcard Records, two of Scotland's most loved independent record labels, and features interviews and music from, amongst others, The Human League, Orange Juice, Aztec Camera and Associates. It also won the Edinburgh International Film Festival 2015 Audience Award. 2017's Teenage Superstars tells the story of what happened next in the uncompromising world of Scottish indie music, bursting with some of the most amazingly difficult, scratchy, genius pop music from the likes of the Vaselines, BMX Bandits, the Pastels, Soup Dragons, the Jesus and Mary Chain and Teenage Fan Club. Grant's latest feature film, 2019's Far From the Apple Tree, has been described as dreamy and haunting at the Boston Underground Film Festival and has seen Grant be described as one of the most interesting filmmakers in Britain today. And in his own words, a creative and exciting director who's always trying to achieve originality in all aspects of film production. Grant, welcome back to Now. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. How are you today? I am very well. It's sunny outside. It's winter. I'm very good, thank you. Firstly, I've got to say how much I have enjoyed revisiting Big Gold Dream and Teenage Superstars recently. They certainly capture a significant moment, not just in Scottish music, but, you know, I I think of of those cultural points as well. But why do you think people continue to respond to the music and your films about these pop periods? I think, obviously, first and foremost, it's great music and it's absolutely stood the test of time. And I think... For a number of reasons, the people who were around at the time, you know, it's reliving their youth. And one of the things which we really want to do with them is to introduce the music to younger audiences. I think people have responded into the way the music was made as well as like the, the, the songs themselves. I found it fascinating because the age I'm at, I was a student. 1990, 94. So I absolutely could resonate with the teenage superstars. I was so much younger in that big gold dream period. Same here. Um, yeah. For me, I started listening to Teenage Fan Club and the Vaselines in 1990, 91. So I missed the first part of the teenage superstar story and you know, obviously missed everything in Big Gone Dream other than being aware of you know, the human league you know, throughout my youth. But, you know, I'm very interested in in the past, discovering these bands like we're from Scotland, which just blew my mind. The Associates and the guy Billy McKenzie from Dundee have finally made it into the charts. You'll love this. And it's also a first timer on top of the pops. <laughs> I can remember probably being about 10 and being aware of bands like The Associates and Orange Juice. You know, you kind of saw them on top of the pops. It was just part of that big pop tapestry. You didn't really make the connection that these guys were from from Dundee or were from Edinburgh or Glasgow, you know. And, and it's only later you kind of start to see that whole timeline 
um, and that fascinating story that you tell between the two films? I think for me, what we tried to do is, although obviously the bands are Scottish and you're based in Scotland, it was really a story that could be told anywhere. And you know, I'd hope just that anyone watching, every city has got their own stories. And that's the thing that really interested me when we started making Big Gone Dream. You know, I'd become aware that Orange Juice and Joseph Cable from Scotland, you know, Postcard was like quite big name, as it obviously still is in indie music. But I was also at that time a big fan of New Order and Joy Division and Factory Records. So I was aware that they'd had this 12-inch on Fast Product. When I discovered that they were from Edinburgh, where I was staying at the time, just it was just jaw-dropping. How could that possibly be? Yeah. And as you say, the music still resonates for younger audiences and that accessibility now to music, you know, be it streaming or whatever, it gives people that opportunity to almost join the dots. Even laterally, you know, the kind of impact on some of the newer Scots bands coming through is still resonating all the way through from all those all those kind of early postcard and fast product records too. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, something else I'm sure we'll touch upon later on is when you buy physical records and you'd save up your pocket money, it meant some to you and you know have all these stories about going to record fairs and great digging for your this record that you've always been after i think now with the ease that is to like find something if it's not on spotify it's going to be on youtube and you know for me personally it was like really exciting at first and then it was just like part of the enjoyment of finding something had gone but i think conversely another and for people coming up who didn't grow up with that they got everything available at them once i think that's an amazing thing you know you have like the entire history of rock and pop available and i think some of the best music we've ever had is around now and it's like from young folk just having everything thrown at them you know genres when music was released you know in a lot of senses is irrelevant to a lot of people when you look at the spotify playlist charts you know it's just it's from all over and it's amazing I think it's really exciting for a young person growing up this is an absolutely exciting time and I don't think we should look back on it in the way you know some sort of misty-eyed past where they've missed out on records being releasing like crate digging um, I think now is a great time to be a young up-and-coming musician yeah absolutely you know we're going to come to that that whole concept of making sense of the past what that looks like from a distance I think it'll be fascinating to see what this decade looks like in 30 years' time. Absolutely. One of my big loves is 1960s music. It just changed dramatically year by year. It was like month by month, week by week. And, you know, pop music has slowed down. As you say, I think it will be really interesting looking back on this decade. And I think it'll be very different from 20 years previously to this, just from what the internet has allowed us to do and technology. Let's let's talk about your own musical journey growing up. What were those early music memories for you? And you know, what influenced those first listening choices that you had? Yeah, I, I grew up in a small village in Fife and my parents had very little interest in music. I had an older brother and an older sister there but eight years older than I was. So I didn't necessarily have the same sort of grown-up experience in music that a lot of other people have with um, an older brother or sister, just like a couple of years older. Um, so my, my brother's musical interests were like sort of prog rock and my sister's was very much sort of like pop of the time and had just a hodgepodge musical interest at the time. I do I distinctly remember my brother buying me an old record player 
and some 60 singles when I would have been about eight or nine. I thought it was like fantastic. But for me at the time, you know, I just didn't see, you know, I was too young to appreciate that this was music of the past. It was just good music. And probably around that time in when I was 10, in fact, it was when the Monkeys TV series was like rebroadcast. Here we come, walking down the street. We get funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, with the monkeys. And people say we're monkeys. An amazing thing. I absolutely fell in love with that band. You know, now I still love them because I just associate them with growing up. I was mentioning to somebody recently that um, part of the Monkey's theme tune is like, get ready, you know, you might, we might be coming to your town. And I just <laughs> thought, that, um, you know, this band from 20 years previously would somehow come to a village with under a thousand people in Fife. Um, you know, there's just like no comprehension in time for your forming. I think we all had that summer holiday, Saturday morning viewing of the Monkeys. Watching it back, it was so well filmed. It didn't even look as if it came from the 60s. It just looked colourful cartoonish obviously the music was brilliant and it absolutely tapped into so many people of our age absolutely even listening now you know you could with you know a little bit more of a musical understanding you can tell where the music came from but you know music still sounds really fresh you know a lot of stuff on tv was like filmed on film you know this just looked like something off the now to me and it still has a massive impact on me and i absolutely love the monkeys and from then from being 10 i probably got into like computers, like with a friend that I was like hanging about with at the time. So all of my early sort of teenage years were just really not being aware much of the music that was going on at the time. That would have been around about the time of the first part of Teenage Superstars with mm. Remix Bandits and Vaselines. And I do have a cousin who I remember we would watch the chart show. <laughs> Like every four weeks they'd have like a different chart they'd have like the indie charts and the dance chart so I was aware of what indie music was but what I just couldn't understand there was one week and it was like Joe by the Spiral Carpets and I distinctly remember yeah. it and my brain couldn't work out what era it was like it was from I'd obviously at some point over like that next year realised that things could be like um, from the past still yeah. played but this video that they had was like shot on Super 8 and they had the sort of um, or- Dorsey organ. And I just, I just couldn't understand what this was. Was it like music from the past? And it sounded really sort of different to the high production values of what to expect in the chart. And that, that was my absolute first understanding or awareness of something called indie music. I didn't like it. it it's just, <laughs> you know, and I really like Spiral Carpets now. I, I always wonder... If it was something, you know, it was like a little bit more accessible straight away, that if things would have changed for me. And really from that point until it was maybe 14 or 15 and girls were more of an interest than computers at the time, we started getting into, into music. And it was really from about, you know, about 1990, music became like a big thing for me. As you start to kind of get into music more, you know, even at the age of 15, 16, there was something curious, there was something totally different about the indie chart. And it just, you know, there was was always these tracks, as you say, you know, that, that, that kind of stood out and you weren't really sure if you liked it or not. But then, you know, going back to the crate digging, I would then spend the Saturday afternoons 
in the local record shops and you'd be browsing around and then you'd make that connection and it was you know that 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 probably was the kind of beginning of of the next phase of me as a music fan it's interesting i, I watched um a lot of the chart show indie chart shows from like the late 80s and early 90s on youtube somebody's uploaded them all mm. you know, it's amazing what people have lying around them <laughs> VHS. <laughs> um, but it's just, you know, like these now compilations, it's a time capsule. And I think mm. we're fascinated by that at this stage, certainly of my life. It's just fantastic. I know people just love looking back, but, you know, just having an off-air video recording of a chart, it's just, mm. it's bizarre. It's the warts in all aspects, though, isn't it? I think yeah. I think that's the that's the brilliance of it. And you know, we're going to talk, I think, around that that kind of concept of of curation and how yeah. actually you're sometimes better being able to see everything in context as it was, and then deciding actually how we got from there to where we are here and what and what what's almost fallen through the cracks. Absolutely, um, you know, when you watch the VHSs of the chart show on YouTube, they're very different to any contemporary. I think Cherry Red have. CD six, eight, seven, yeah, you know, all three CD compilations of like what would have been happening in the charts and the stuff that's just not even through licensing issues. It's just stuff that's just not there. They've got the truth and you know the absolute truth. I think it's it's still a rich time for you know for compilation albums and for compilers. And I'm, I'm actually thinking back to the Big Gold Dream album as well. The, you know the box set that came off the back of of your documentary yeah. as well. Part of that is is interesting. You know, it was put together, not just by myself, but a lot of people put that together. You know, for me, it was like a fascinating journey. You know, I love discovering new things and new ways to do something. And probably yourself would make like C90 compilations for friends. Yeah. And it's very different when you deal with you know, a record company, much like the compilers of the now compilations have to do because you have the business aspects of it. You know, it's like what actually can be licensed, but then you also have what has already appeared on other compilations across this company's what works for yeah. that. And you know, for, for Big Old Dream, you know, we the box it, you know, it was like amazing. It was an amazing journey for me because I heard tons of things that I'd never yeah. heard of before. And I think it shows the quality of music from Scotland at that time in that you know we were we did have limitations and what we could put out but the stuff that was there is like really good you know it's not the first choices for everything but it's yeah. still great and you know i'm assuming that's the same for a lot of these now compilations and the other box sets that are out there usually at this point in the podcast i would be asking my guests to tell me which album they've picked and you have picked an album but it's not one of the numbered series albums so we're we're moving into an interesting territory here because you've chosen the Millennium Series issue, which came out in 1999, for the album 1996. So, first of all, tell us a bit about what 96 was like for you, Grant. What, what was going on in your life then? Well, it was actually a really interesting part of my life. I left school in 1994 and I'd gone to university, but I stayed at home. It wasn't until 1996 where I'd finally left and gone to another city. In Edinburgh, which was an amazing experience. And before that, you know, when I was at school, sort of thing, I just got into indie music um, when I was at high school. And, I, you know, I fell down the rabbit hole there. I was obsessed 
listening to things from like years before, like Smiths and also very sort of like contemporary indie stuff of the day, sort of like pre-Britpop stuff and also a lot of 60s stuff. I, I distinctly remember two things, buying one of the really, really sort of cheap Echo and the Bunnymen compilations and it had a song on it called Painted Black. And I thought this was like an amazing track. And I was thinking, this song was like, great, why have I not heard this before? And I looked at the track list and it said Jagger Richards. So I thought, that can't possibly be Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Rolling Stones, you know, they're owned. You know, they, <laughs> it is, it's as a Rolling Stones song. So I quickly picked up a, an owned compilation of the Rolling Stones and it wasn't Rolling Stones. It's a, I think it might have actually been a key tell mm. arcade, one of the mm-hmm. bizarre sort of um, licensing things they did around about that time. Every song in it was amazing. And it just, I couldn't believe that I was actually listening to music from the past, but being aware that it was music from the past when I was listening to sort of indie music, unaware of their influences, thinking, you know, you can only listen to, to new things. It was like a, a revelation that I'd actually started listening to something that was like decades before, but none of the friends at school were listening mm. to this. And I had a damned record. They had a song called Alone Again or mm. on it. And I thought, that's an amazing song. That's the best song on it. But I didn't see their writing credits on it. Mm. Uh, this is a guy called Brian McLean. You know, there's no internet and you know, I had nobody to ask. So I found a book, I think it was like in Waterstones. It was just like a, a catalogue of songwriters. And I somehow managed to trace it back to this album, Love Forever Changes, and then pick up a copy. And you know, from that point, you know, I was absolutely hooked on 60s stuff. There's a record shop that I'd found in Dundee called Groucho's, and people there would like recommend other 60s music to me, like Sid Barrett and you know, the first Pink Floyd album. So I was absolutely primed for what would be Britpop. So you know, I'd left home and I'd landed in Edinburgh at a time when this new iteration of British indie music come, but with a huge 60s influence of the mm. You know, I just sort of fell head over heels with it. It was that time when you're away from home for the first time. You're going to like sort of clubs and meeting new people. You know, it could have been any music and it would have been a fantastic experience. But this was clubs were playing sort of these Rolling Stone songs and, you know, everything you know, from the, they were calling Cool Britannia at the time, the Kinks and <laughs> the Who and stuff like that. And it was just like an amazing experience for me at that time to be young when there was like some new movement you felt you were part of even all the, the press at the time even on the television were like talking about this thing it felt you were part of it yeah. even you were like you know 400 miles away really from where things were happening it was already over at that point yeah it was interesting that the kind of centre of that Britpop, and we always say that now with a slight arched eyebrow because of, you know, <laughs> the whole context of Britpop, what it is or wasn't. But that whole culture, it was very London-centric, but we absolutely embraced it. It was exciting times. I can still remember just that vivid excitement. And it was it was a bit like our 60s. And every week there was something else coming out, be it film, be it music, that was linked to that freshness and vibrance that often gets overlooked, I think, now, when you, know, you talk about that mid-90s period. No, for sure. You know, we're talking about your films, it was like Trainspotting came out. Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television. <laughs> choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. That absolutely still stands as a fantastic film. 
I watched it maybe every 10 years. I felt a little bit dated mm. um, the last time I watched it, but when I watched it very recently, we're talking of something that's nearly 30. Oh, it's amazing. And young directors, young commercials directors, young music video directors are using that as an yeah. influence for them. It's an incredible film and it is an incredible time. It just combines perfectly with what you're talking about. I'm going to throw my train spotting story in here because a girl I was working with at the time managed to buy tickets to the premiere in Glasgow in February 96. All the stars were there and it was just amazing. As the film was unfolding, there was song after song after song that you kind of started to realise this is going to be a massive thing from the Iggy Pop at the beginning. Even actually for me here in nightclubbing, in the middle of that film, it was all these songs like that, Perfect Day, that I'd been listening to as a student and you suddenly think it's all converging. And then, of course, um, Born Slippy at the end, which I'd known previously as a club hit. And it was almost like Danny Boyle dragging it into the mainstream and saying, this is what it's about. Absolutely, completely agree. And I think Andrew McDonald, the producer, I know him a little bit. He, he helped out a lot on Teenage Superstars. So I had a few chats with him about the soundtrack and he was like heavily involved in compiling it. But it is just, for that time, a phenomenal compilation. It just ticked all the boxes at that time. And now the vast majority of it is still fantastic, you know, especially, as you say, like the pop stuff. There was also a fantastic marketing campaign with those posters. Mm. Um, I felt like, you know, because the book had come out and living in Edinburgh, we'd read the book. The press campaign was just, you know, phenomenal. You know, it ticked all the right wrong boxes, you know, with controversy um, and fantastic reviews. And it was the must-see film, I would say, of the decades, really. <laughs> So going back to kind of your listening of 1996, I'm going to come to this Millennium Series compilation album in a second that now pulled together. What would have been the contemporary music that you'd have been listening to around about 96 then? When the contemporary tracks, um, I was a student at the time. It's like money other than what <laughs> my student grant would be spent on. You know, was limited. Briefly got into Nirvana. I loved America's Underground, early 90s stuff in the early 90s. Very quickly moved away from that. And what started coming out were these Shine compilations. Shine. The ultimate collection of 20 brilliant indie hits. With Blur, The Smiths, Suede, New Order and Elastica. Plus, Oasis, The Cranberries, Green Day and more. They're very contemporary with the now compilations, which just combine indie music of the day, or well, the Britpop music of the day. So, you know, it was a fantastic way. Two CDs for £10, whatever it was, yeah. and you would get all the singles that were either going to be hits or had just been hits. I think it was like now with... Um, must have been out every four months or every six months. Yeah, so. yeah. I do like finding some of these old comps and just having a look at, you know, scanning the back because they now become more interesting the further down the track list you go as you kind of get down to the kind of stuff that maybe you don't hear as much anymore. They really did cover a good good range of the indie stuff, the Shine albums. They did, you know, especially like the stuff, the ones that round about four, five, and I think into six would um, cover all the sort of bands, like, you know, the big bands of the day, like Blur, Oasis, they would also like cover the bands that were like clearly labels, 
Martin bands as Britpop. And they'd also like have the survivors like from the last period mm. of like, <laughs> like rebadging themselves. Yeah, you know, and there were some great bands. You know, that Lush are still a fantastic band. I think they themselves admit that they went along with it. And you know, absolutely hats off to them. And then there were just a few things in there which um bore little resemblance to like Britpop, but they had guitars on them, so they were like chucked in there as well. They're quite interesting to look at, really, with 10 at least clear chart hits, which um, you know, for anyone on a limited means, it's a fantastic way to get a lot of music. Basically the best C90 in the world. An album came out last year, a box set called Caught Between the Landslide. It was a four CD Britpop overview. And it's interesting, but actually listening to you talk, you would almost advise somebody, if you wanted a real snapshot of what Britpop was like in the 90s, go and spend £5 in a charity shop and find as many Shine albums as you possibly can. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, it's just like, you know, stuff like McCallum and Butler, you know, it's like, mm. you know, it's not exactly Oasis. Um, you know, I think that's like a great thing, just like introducing stuff that's just off. Yeah. And they're all on Shine. Yeah. Like anything had a guitar and like <laughs> <laughs> vaguely the charts was on there. Thinking about the kind of Now series then, back in 96, there was there was three numbered volumes came out that year. 33, 34, 35. Yeah, Would yeah. any of these have been on your radar? Probably not. And, you know, the absolute reason for that, you know, just being honest, is like, because I would have been sniffy about it at the time. Yeah. You know, now you grow up and you absolutely appreciate things without baggage. I don't think I owned any Now compilations at all. I don't think I, I do. Now my sister had some of the very early ones, but I certainly wouldn't have bought a now compilation. From speaking to guests on here, people that did buy them, there was a very definite stop point in the purchasing for most people. And it was usually around about that kind of mid-teens, drift off, find something else. And not even just the music, just, just find different things. And if it was music, it tended to be in inverted commas, serious music. And, yeah. and it was moving away from pop. But people drift back. And I mean, I'll put my hands up and say, I, I followed the exact same journey. But as you say, it's that critical element of stop being sniffy and actually coming back and saying, this is okay to look at this from a different point of view and appreciate things for what they were. No, completely. And, you know, the thing I, I think is like, I, I just love any well-constructed pop song regardless yeah. of any genre I, I think it is an incredible skill from the days of what the brill building to the beatles to ava to now having a well-structured song with a melody regardless of like lyrics or anything is just an amazing skill and i would absolutely love to be able to do having something that gets into Top 20 is, is an amazing thing. And all of these now compilations are absolutely full of great, well-constructed classic pop songs. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing skill. And I yeah. really appreciate anyone who can do that. The great thing about the now albums, as we've kind of gathered through this podcast, is that they are absolute time capsules. There's no revisionism in them. It is, this is what people were buying. This is what was, you know, within the charts at that given time. But interestingly, you've chosen to look at one that was actually a retrospective view of 1996 that was created in 1999. And now fans will know that now have revisited like this, well, actually on three occasions. In 1993, they released 10 anniversary albums, which took each of the years. They did the same in 1999 for the millennium and actually went back to 1980 and did a whole 20-year series. They've just started them again, 2021-22, by doing yearbooks. 
These are fascinating because the subjectivity, they're always wide open for debate. Looking at this Millennium 1996 album, what do you see as standout tracks on there? Does this look like 1996 to you? As I mentioned before, there's the truth and the absolute truth. You know, without a doubt, these are tracks I all vividly remember from 1996. I'm trying to, I'm just going to have a quick look if there's anything that I don't remember. Don't Stop Moving, Living Joy and Seven Days in One Week. That's something that I'm not really aware of. But Are these not on your playlist every day, Grant? <laughs> I did have a look through, through what I did do is like I had a few listened to some of the stuff that I don't remember from 33, 34, mm. and 35. And um I know you're you're right, they are absolutely on my playlist, but um <laughs> recheck just to refresh my memory. What I love is also so bizarre is just that there's stuff just thrown in here. Now 33, Disco's Revenge. You know, that's something that just completely passed me by. I would listen to the charts, you know, and I'd also read the newspapers and magazines at the time. Likewise, Kendo and mm. Dreadlong, GX, and Certified Something I'm Aware of, that Stretch and Vern. What isn't really on this retrospective version of 1996 is the dance, you know, house. Yeah. yeah. And like the Euro house, Europop. Mm. And Part of that, you know, and you'll know far more than me, I'm assuming it's just partly to do with, you know, protecting their whole range. You know, they have like, their own sort of house dance music. Is it like now dance? Yeah. What I found looking back at this, I think it's fascinating to contextualise that this was compiled in 99. So they were still relatively close to 96, yeah, you know. Yeah. But there is a heavy weight, I think, around what would have been classed as Britpop. yeah. And I don't know why that is. By 1999, if you were to go back and look at the charts, Britpop had really disappeared. By 1999, the charts were really full of boy bands, girl bands. But 1996 is a wash with, I'm just looking down the track list, you know, the big hitters, Pulp, Oasis are on there, Space, Dodgy, Suede, Cast, Supergrass. I mean, it's a proper run of what would be classed as Britpop. Um, And I don't know why that was. I think you're absolutely right to mention the boy bands, you know, Boyzone are on this with like words, which I think was like the start of their you know, yeah. massive number one singles. And, you know, so the 60s BGs, I think, are fantastic songwriters. Mm. It's a good choice. You've got Lighthouse Family, but it's heavily weighted to Britpop and it's almost as if, you know, they're saying, you know, 1996 was the year of, of Britpop. When you look at the contemporary charts, well, that's not really the case with this being a now compilation, it is revisionism. The end of the 90s, they were obsessed with, I think that's where that sort of retromania, sort of revisionism mm. started. You know, Britpop obviously itself was heavily revisionist. But I remember, you know, I think it was because the millennium was coming around. Yeah. I remember a whole series of those remember dot 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 programs and it's like remember this is bbc2 look away now if you're of gentle disposition it must be 1992 in 2000 um, i remember watching one and it was like do you remember 1999 it was like so bizarre and we were talking about things like do you remember when we all wore those twisted levi jeans i think i was actually at the time they became obsessed with you know, because it's like, you know, partly because it's like cheap TV, but people were obsessed with 
reminiscing about the past, it just feels, as you're saying, it's like this was like, oh, yeah, this Britpop, that's all that really happened. I remember really liking the Spice Girls. You know, they sort of like fitted in mm. with that whole sort of Britpop period. And you've got Eternal, you're well, fantastic. And, you know, now I would never have dreamed of listening to something like that at the time. And Louise, but, you know, really it's all, it's, it's interesting because I didn't realise it was like compiled in 1999, which, you know, thinking about it, it makes sense if it's in the millennium. But um, there is a bit of revisionism going on here, I think. And that's also interesting. Well, it is. And certainly um, the latest now retrospective albums, the yearbooks that have come out, are causing a real flurry of interest as well. So, so they've done three. They've done 84, 83 and 82 right. at the moment. It's fascinating because, well, I mean, to give you an example, the 1983 kicks off with Club Tropicana. If you go back to the anniversary 1983 album that came out in 1993, the wham track that's on there is Bad Boys, which you just don't hear anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you know? And it's, it's just fascinating to see how trends change as you get a bit further away from things. Because you're right, I mean, there's tracks on here. If this album was to be compiled now, if there was a 1996 yearbook to be compiled, which I'm sure the Now team will do at some point, how many of these tracks would be on it? Yeah, I think you're right. Out of interest, which ones do you think would be? Well, I don't. <laughs> I probably would <laughs> would say <laughs> Seven Days in One Week probably wouldn't be registering as a uh, as a major 1996 <laughs> hit. Nine One One. It's because this was compiled in '99 when a lot of these bands were still contemporary and were still having hits. So bands like Nine One One, quite a few of these may struggle to make the cut now. But there's equally tracks on here that, that would still be top of that list, like the Spice Girls, like Boyzone. You know, wh- whether you like them or not, they absolutely indicate what that year was all about. No, for sure, music, you know, when we revisit the past, you know, attitudes are quite different from the, how, how they were at the time. I'm trying to think, you know, choose my words carefully. <laughs> you, you know, Britpop, without a doubt, is quite rightly, I think, now viewed in a very different way. You know, it was like I was into, you know, sort of like indie music of the day in the sort of early 90s, you know, I suppose like an indie kid at that time, you know, which I was, you know, was like a quiet person who was, you know, quite sort of introspective and with Britpop, all these people dramatically changed. And it's like through culture of the time, you know, I was still like a quiet person but you know mm. it's just you would be part of what was going on you would see how people change you know as, as i mentioned you know some bands quickly sort of like redress themselves you know one minute they're playing melancholy introspective song about never being able to find <laughs> her and then the next minute they're talking about like you know, drinking 10 pints of beer <laughs> a night and you know and Spice Girls documentary mentions them mm. recently. You know, it's, it's, it's like horrific when you look back on it how they were treated and when you look at a lot of the magazines, like from the time, if this is going to be compiled again, it's going to be a very different compilation yeah. from this. You know, it'll be some definitely some persona and grata Britpop bands. NME's top 50 tracks in 96, number one was Born Slippy, which is quite interesting. So that's where you see the real crossover between now and pop in the NME world, you know, that actually they weren't that far off the mark. I think that actually is a good point you're actually just making there for like anyone who's into indie music and the Britpop music because it is, you know, in a lot of ways, like a very sort of narrow worldview of music. And, you know, eventually, like the dance music and stuff, hip hop started becoming part of that world. 
and actually started, you know, sort of like emulating what a lot of these now compilations are like, you know, having a bit of diversity, and that's like mm. a, a good thing. Now, at the beginning of the, you know, the next century was was a really interesting democratic world. The end of the 90s had seen that shift. I'm avoiding using titles, but trip hop came in. Uh-huh. There was a kind of sample culture. There was a dig back into... 60s and 70s samples all sorts of things that then made pop more interesting trailblazers like dj shadow portis head that sounds infiltrating into the kind of mainstream as well certainly interesting going back to those nows in the 40s and 50s there's quite an interesting range of music in there no there isn't it's like a good thing and just for you know a casual listener it's like fantastic just having that breadth of music it's amazing The majority of these tracks on this 1996 Millennium album do come from 33, 34 and 35. But equally, there's a handful, not many. But interestingly, Stupid Girl by Garbage was completely missed by the numbered compilations. That to me is a fascinating track because it's that strong front presence of Shirley Manson. If you look down, that, particularly that compact disc one, the Britpop and the guitar-driven pop, it's all male-driven. Yeah. And looking back now, we know that wasn't always the case. But it's not, it's not seen here. And I think you're right, that revisionism would probably look quite differently at 1996 now. I think so. I think it's, um, it's really difficult. You know, it's, like, it's going to be a, a tough job for somebody compiling that um, because, you know, can you revise something too much from reality? Can you make it off reality? Absolutely, you're right there. It's just, you know, that is not the reality of like 1996. This is quite interesting, though. I've done a bit of internet crate digging, as you do. We all love the Smash Hits poll winners party. I'm, sh- I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure we've got our own memories. 1996 awards, um, it was presented by Ant and Deck and Lily Savage. So, <laughs> could you have a more 1996 moment? You probably couldn't. <laughs> if you look at this Millennium 96 album and look at what won that year, best group was the Spice Girls. Best international group was Boyzone. Best male singer was Peter Andre. Best female singer was Louise Redknapp. Best dance soul act was Eternal. They're all on here. And actually, it's that reminder that when now get it right, they do get it right. Because this, this, this is what pop fans were listening to. Worst group, Upside Down. No idea. Worst person on TV, Chris Evans. Loser of 1996. Any any ideas who the Smash Hits readers voted the loser oh, of 1996? Michael Jackson? Robbie Williams. Robbie Williams, really? Which, because wow. his solo career hadn't kicked off yet, and he'd left Take That, and of course, Smash Hits readers would have detested Robbie for leaving Take That and everything else. If only they knew. Absolutely. There's that whole period, I forgot, where Robbie would be hanging around with Oasis, and wow, yeah, interesting. I, th- I think you're right, you know, and now they really do have it, you know, even the name, you know, is they were right not to have it like hits the rival completion mm. because it is now and off the now, you know, it is it perfectly encapsulates that era. So thinking backwards, thinking forwards, what kind of tracks from your version of '96 would now be replacing some of these tracks if, if this album was to come back out again? Um it's a good question. I don't have the skill to to be able to compile something as cleverly as the now compilers to be able to appeal to to a mass audience for that. You know, my one would probably include 
some of the tracks that actually probably weren't hits but were great songs from yeah. that period. Am I right in thinking that some of the stuff for the now compilations was chosen before they were actually sort of hits or they were like still you know, going up the charts, you know, to, to get to be able to pick something that yeah. is going to be an even bigger hit than it already is, is astounding. Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly for the numbered albums, it is a gift. I mean, I'm always amazing. I can think back to some of the early nows, um, because sometimes they get it spot on, sometimes they miss as well. You know, there's always that element. But I can think back to some of the early nows that I was saving up my pocket money for on cassettes of WH Smith or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And you look back now and think some of these tracks weren't even released when the album came out. So you're taking that punt. And I mean, that is a gift, being able to, to spot that. In some ways, though, particularly the newest retrospective albums that now are putting out, they are pushing the boat out a bit further. I think it would be a much broader range than what's snapshot here on that Millennium album. Again, um, if you look back, for example, at the NME Top 50 tracks of 96, given that there was so much indie presence on this, there are tracks that probably now would have on the 2022 version of this, for example, A Design for Life by The Mannix is yeah. completely missed. Tracks like The Prodigy, Firestarter, Ash, Charlatans. I think there would be a kind of slightly broader indie presence now across an album like yeah. this. I, I do think it'd be interesting just to pop in, you know, the occasional song which like, would have been or should have been a massive hit. That's like mm. one of the big things that I've always got is like using a means to get something to the masses where you can put in the odd track that um, sounds like a perfect like pop hit, but just for whatever reason wasn't, and you just like slip it in amongst some other yeah. top ten tracks, and you know that's what I'd love to do. <laughs> I, I, I can't think of a single track of the <laughs> Do you know, we were talking earlier about smart curation of compilation albums. What were the forgotten songs? What were the tracks that were the nearly hits? Because actually, they were often the ones that we all heard as well, particularly, I think, locally as well, probably earlier than 96. But, you know, within the Scottish artists' realm of things, bands like Goodbye, Mr. Mackenzie, The Silencers, you know, big Scottish bands like this that had big local hits. I think there's always space for these types of tracks in now. But I think it's, you know, having something placed within that context and available to the public changes the way we we think of something being a hit. What surprised me the other day was I was looking at Beach Boys um, early sort of like sixties or mid sixties chart placings mm. and songs that you think of. I, I absolutely was convinced that something like Surf in USA would have been like a top five hit. It just didn't hit at all. I think it was only really up to like nineteen sixty six. It was like I get around was the only top ten hit that they had. And but you know we now from having you know that sort of charity shop staple. The Beach Boys compilation, yeah. you know, everything on that now sounds like a hit and you just put something in a different context and people assume they were hits. Yeah, that's where that kind of unfolding popular culture helps us to reshape a revision of what things are because just exactly as you're saying, there probably would be songs that were either made popular through films or television or whatever that weren't big hits in the chart, but actually looking back now, probably would appear on an album like this. No, no, absolutely. It's really these now compilations, the more I think about them, and I hadn't thought about them for like years, um, they're fascinating. And it is, you know, it's just like how much do you manipulate the past when you're revisiting something? You know, yeah. I, the numbered ones absolutely stand out there in terms of what could actually have been licensed by them at the time because not mm. all the labels were on board 
with that, you know, so even looking back, you know, he just skimmed through the now compilations without cross-referencing with the charts. He'd have a different version of, of reality. But yeah. they're pretty much based in stark reality. It's just what do we do with these things now? You know, as like um buyers, you know, do we remember things exactly as that? You know, I certainly don't, you know, just when I see something, you know, like the, the the compilation we're talking about now, I just think, oh yeah, that's just what it was like. But when you actually think about it and then start looking at the contemporary numbered compilations in the charts, you know, it's not really the same. Around about the millennium, there was a lot of film compilation albums used to come out as well. It's interesting going back. I dug one out the other week, um, which is called Soundtrack. And it's very heavily focused on a lot of the Tarantino films, the Guy Ritchie films. Nowadays, if you were compiling a best of British film soundtrack albums, you would not have fucking In the Bushes by Oasis on there. <laughs> I don't even know what film that was in. Was it, was it one of the Guy Ritchie films or something? I don't know. Oh, yeah. And it's that's, I suppose, like these numbered nows, going actually, you know, going back and looking at a compilation and looking back and seeing what was deemed important or significant culturally at a given time is always fascinating to see. Completely. And I think hit the nail on the head with them. Um, Movie soundtracks, like you know, that helped shift a lot of music and put it into a popular consciousness of what was popular or not. And pop fiction is like a fantastic example of that because not much on that soundtrack was really like a hit, but it also allows these own songs to be contemporary for a young audience before the age of Spotify and and YouTube. And I think you know what I hope is like at some point in the not too distant future, young people will be a bit. Like I was, like the very start of my musical journey, like with the monkeys, and like just not really being aware of when a song was written. You know, and I think that's a good thing because it's the quality of the songwriting that stands out, you know, for that. Grant, thank you so much for joining me here on the Back to Now podcast and sharing not just your musical journey, but also your memories of 1996. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you for having me.